For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, Tuesday night. <clears throat> it be, I guess, the third night of Hanukkah. And I didn't find any sponsor yet, but I'm going to do one anyway. Someone asked me, a friend of mine asked me to do it, and I will uh, comply to the best I can. Uh, and I'll take a different, uh, slightly different uh, approach. Um, the, uh, I don't get lumbish or anything like that. <clears throat> That's not what this podcast is for. <clears throat> but there's a very interesting um, connection or development, not with the original story of Hanukkah, which I've covered in the past, but with the history of Hanukkah in terms of how the holiday has evolved and was practiced among the Jews. Because since the ceremony, of course, consists of lighting candles at the doorway or outside or visibly, Persumaniso, this ran into the problem already in the time of the Gemara in some places of anti-Semitism. And as you know, it says you light in the house where the Goyim cannot see it. As a result of this, a whole variety of customs developed in different communities uh, in the Middle Ages and so forth afterwards about where exactly the minig was <clears throat> to light the candles. Obviously, those who lived in better times could light the candles in the windows or outside or something like that. Those who lived in worse times uh, lit it inside where the guy can't see it. Uh, if you lived in a ghetto, you could light it in the outside because nobody else is there except the Jews. Or in a Muslim <clears throat> ghetto like the Malach or something like that. In other words, in a Jewish neighborhood. But a lot of times, Jews did not live in that way. Second of all, <clears throat> since Hanukkah comes around the time of Xmas, it could sometimes overlap, and the guy could run around <clears throat> and make trouble with holiday cheer just because it's Xmas time. So, you know, these are all factors that had to be taken into account <clears throat> where people did it. I might also add, by the way, one second, uh, okay, I might add that, in addition, uh, architecture had to do. In other words, exactly how the Jews live, because it's supposed to be near, in the doorway, you know, Tevach HaSamach LePesach, and it should be opposite the mezuzah, <coughs> it says. Uh, I think we all know it. However, in many times and places in Jewish history, for various reasons, either there were physical dangers or just stupid minhagim arose. Sometimes, uh, so people didn't necessarily have mezuzahs where they're supposed to. Uh, you would be surprised. I don't know if I mentioned it here or not in the podcast that um, Ashkenazic Jews in the Middle Ages usually didn't have mezuzahs in their houses. They had a grand total of one. This is not me talking. You can look at the Ramah in Yeridea and Hochus Mezuzah in Reish Pezayin. <coughs> and this, again, <coughs> this is Ramah. Haminig Nispashid Bemedinus Elu. The custom here among we Ashkenazic Jews, which means now he's quoting a Maril, but you know he's it must apply in Poland as well. The most Jewish families have a grand total of one mezuzah in their house on the front door. But it's incorrect. There's no postic that supports having only one mezuzah. 
So really, you should have mezuzahs in every door, in every in house, which is what we do today. Although I remember when I was young, you used to see some people had a grand total of a single mezuzah in the house. And you used to think that they're dummies and all the rest of it, <clears throat> which is certainly possible. Uh, because, you know, in, in terms of Judaism, <clears throat> they were kind of ignorant. On the other hand, they may be adhering to old, 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 old family customs from the old country. They could be wrong, but they're old minhagim. So I'm simply saying that if you if you lived in a place, now the, the Ramaz talking about where they put a, a mezuzah in the front door, but the Rabbeinu Ruchim says in Spain, they put or in his time, they put it in the back door. There's all kind of various scenarios and situations. And so if you're talking about the history of Hanukkah lighting, that's different than the history of the Hanukkah story in Judah Maccabee. It's the history of how this uh, holiday and halachas and customs arose and evolved over the course of Jewish history. That's a separate shmooz. I only want to touch on a tiny piece of that. I think an interesting one. <coughs> uh, and already in the times of the Gemara, and anybody who learned the Gemara and Shabbos, and I'm sure many, many of the people listening to this are familiar with the basic Gemara and Shabbos. If I am, then I'm sure you are. Uh, in what? Chafalaf? Chafes? <coughs> uh, so, they talk about, you know, uh, the regular Mahadran and Mahadran and Mahadran, correct? You know, and the regular is Neri Shabeso, <clears throat> which means that you light a grand total of one candle on every night. So, in other words, there's one candle in the window or wherever, one candle in your menorah uh, the first night, one candle on your menorah the second night, one candle on your menorah the third night. Down to the, even on the eighth night, they light a grand total of one candle. This has to do with economics and all kind of other stuff. Now, mind you, if what I just said were true, there's no such thing as a menorah. <laughs> you get it? What do you need it for? The family, let's say a poor family, is lighting a single candle. All you need is is like one candle holder, like one of the, one of the things you use, so to speak, on Friday night. You know, I mean, like one of your leichter, as it were. I didn't say use the Shabbos one. Maybe they got a special one for Hanukkah, but it's just hold one candle. And this is perfectly legitimate. Neri Shabeso. And the whole family would get together every night. And the father would recite. Um, because there's only one guy with the menorah. Neri Shabeso means that the household has a grand total of a single menorah. So the father, presumably, would gather the family around and would light the candle with the brachas and all that kind of stuff. And that's the end of it, baby. Over. Uh, that's one way. So I repeat. The menorah business or Hanukkah that you and I are familiar with is not based on that. Nor is the menorah or the Hanukkah based on the Mahadran. Because the Mahadran is uh, uh, that you light, again, the same number every night based on how many people is in your family. So, me, myself, and I, at this particular moment in my history, we have a grand total of four people in my house. You know, the kids are married off and this and that, the other... We have a grand total of four people in the house. It's me, Karen, Elishevin, and Moshari uh, right now. Now, that would mean, if I followed the Mahadran system, uh, that I that the, the magic number <coughs> in this year, Tavshin, Pei, Gimel, in the cat's household would be four. Me, Karen, Moshari, and Elishevin. It's four of us. So the first night, so I, I would have a Hanukkah or a menorah with four um, you know, branches, and that's it. Four lights. Not something with eight. And the first night you light four, the second night you light four, the third night you light f four, 
all the way down to the eighth note, you light four. And that's called Mahadran. The hitter is that I don't only write a single candle for my whole household, which I'm allowed to do, but now I'm Diamond Jim Brady. I'm showing off. I'm spending more money in the mitzvah, hitter mitzvah, and I'm not doing one candle a night. I'm doing four candles a night. Uh, another person may have six or seven people in their family, and they would have, let's say, for example, seven the first night, seven the second night, seven the third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, and on the eighth night, also seven, because that's how many people are at their family. So I repeat, there wouldn't be a menorah of eight. People would go into the business of, I mean, it wouldn't be a menorah, actually. Those days, what they obviously must have done was just lined up candles, which you're allowed to do, you know, in a row, and that's your quote-unquote uh, Nehru's Hanukkah. You get what I'm saying? The eight that is universal now is because everybody does Mahad Mahad, but I'm just saying, really, you would have based on the number of people in your family. And the number of people in your family varies. Once upon a time, I had other children. Thank God they got married. Now they're off on their own. They have era, their households. So they're not counted as part of mine. You know, they make their own. And um, they would have as many as they have. So somebody, for example, think about what I'm saying. You know, some people have 10, 12 kids. So let's say somebody has 12 kids and they're all still home. Woo! Um, plus the mother and the father. So they don't have a, a menorah of eight candles. They got to order something special. They need a menorah of 14 candles. You see what I'm saying? So that the first night is 14, and the second night is 14. And the hidur, first of all, you're spending more money, but second of all, the hidur is that each candle represents a member of your family, and sort of like the whole family is participating on an individual basis in the celebration of the Prasuminis of the Nesa Hanukkah. And it has its own aesthetic. You know, you, you hear that. Now, I repeat, in that case, the number eight, like you have in the menorahs now, is meaningless. Unless, coincidentally, you happen to have eight people in the family. So if it's a mother and father and six kids and they're still at home, economy. Otherwise not, right? So you, you listener, you ask yourself, how many people do we have in the house? That's how many people would be in the the first night, and the second night, and the third night, all the way through to the eighth night. And then the third level, as we all know, is Mahadra Minna Mahadra. So this is already tricky. Because Mahadra Minna Mahadra comes out to as we all know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Not like base Shammai, who says 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, but 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. That's the famous two opinions in the Gemara. Uh, you know, Yomim Hanech Nosim, Yomim and all that business. So, uh, <clears throat> based on that, you, if you do 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, that means the first night is one candle, second night is two candles, third night is three candles, and so forth. The question is, of course, what does that mean exactly? Does it mean that you still have one person lighting on behalf of everybody else? So when I walk by your house, I see a single menorah, and every note is another candle. And that's already impressive because it shows me, you know, this, this, uh, they're reenacting the miracle, so to speak, on a, on a kind of a imitational basis, you know. Three candles. Oh, the candles were burning for the third night. Four candles. The candle was still burning on the fourth night. And so forth. The historical reenactment. But what happened to the fact, as I said before, if I have a family of 14, 12 kids and two parents, that will not be reflected in what I just told you. Correct? Nobody today has a menorah of 14. Right? Every menorah is eight. So the question is, 
the Mahadrin and Mahadrin, is that literally Mahadrin on top of the Mahadrin, or is it a separate custom based on the first one of Nerisha Beso? Are you talking about Mahadrin and Mahadrin means that you have a single manure in the house, or does Mahadrin and Mahadrin means you have multiple manures in the house? And Tosis very famously says, again, I mean, I think most people know this. Tosis says, Nirala read the Beishame Beisolo Kaimi on Nerisha Beso. That the opinions that we have of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight that you and I follow, is fo- is going on the idea that there's a single minor, there's a single minor in the family, right? There's a grand total of a single minor in the family. Because then there is, like I say, the symbolism you're reenacting the 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 the, the miracle. Let's say go like Beisel, like we do. So every day is another day. But if everybody in your family knows if you light the Mahadran way, which is 14 in the family, if you do that way, I feel you're not going to be able to tell since there's 14 candles. I walk by your house. I see 14 candles on the first night. How do I know what I'm looking at? And then I see 28 candles the second night or something like that. You know, I mean, there's, there's no indication when, in the menorah that I'm looking at that it's the second night of Hanukkah. I sing 28 candles. So happens that you have 20, 14 people in your family and making it times two. How should the passerby know that? You get it? There's, there's nothing universalistic in all this. That's the famous argument of Tosis. Now, uh, I'm going somewhere with this, so bear with me. Uh, I think many know that. Now, the Rambam, very famously, well-known stuff, says in, in his, uh, you know, in the Mishnah Torah, that Kamaneris uh, in, in the last parak of Hilchus Chanukah, Kamaneris who madlik b'Chanukah. How many maneris do you do? Mitzvasa ba'is kol madlik nerechad. So the minimum is a grand total of one candle every night, no matter how many people there are in the house. Like I said, neris shabeso. Hamahadris a mitzvah, madlik neris kaminian on sheabayis. L'kol echav yechad. Pein anoshem noshem. So the mahadrin. Is as I said to you before, fourteen candles, the first night, the second night, the third night, fourth night, and so forth. Hamahadr Yosir Alzeh. If you want to do Mahadr Mina Mahadrin, Madrik Madlik Ner Luchol Echad Belalarishan Amosibel Ner Echad. So he doesn't agree with Tosin. He says, indeed, you'll have um, fourteen the first night, twenty-eight the second night, and there wasn't me forty-two the third night. You know, so to speak. Harishoy Yanchu bases Asaro. So according to him, if you had 10 people in the house, a mother, father, and eight kids, so on the eighth night, you'd have eight times 10, you have 80 neiris, it'd be like a fire hazard de la bomba. But my point is, that wouldn't fit on any menorah that you have, I've ever heard about. Someone would have to rig up something. Think about what I'm saying. You'd have to have a long row, or I don't know what they do, you know. How you'd fit 80 neiris on there. I'm just asking a practical question. How you fit, fit 80 neiris in there if you're doing Mahadran or Hadran? So he doesn't understand it the way the Tosis does, as you can see. He says, indeed, um, it, 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 the passerby will not really know what's going on. Because I'm walking by a house, I see 30 menorahs. I mean, that can be a lot of different reasons for that. I, I see another guy with 40 menorahs. I see a guy with 12 menorahs. I'm asking you, the listener, how many people's in your family? If you do like the, the way I just mentioned, so 
it, it, I mean, the numbers would like radically vary. Today's the third night. I walk by, I see a whole bunch of candles. There's no way I would know it was the third night because it'd be multiples of the number of people in your family. And then the Raman goes on to say, very famously and controversially, that um, even though that's how he understands the din, Minik Pasha it was a Minik Pasha in Spain. In other words, the Rambam left Spain when he was young. So he said that the Minik in Spain was to do it the Sephardi way. Which is that everybody would light a grand total of one the first night, and then they would light a second one the second night, and the third night, and so on and so forth. Now, he seems to be contradicting himself because he just told me that the, you know, the, the Mahajan means you had under with 80 neighbors or 100 for all I know. In Irish, you got some big families. I mean, you know, can you imagine somehow, I'm not being funny. Suppose somebody has 20 kids. I know people have 20 kids. <laughs> How would you ever like the Hanukkah menorah? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't be a menorah. You'd have to like the Hanukkah. You have to call the fire department, basically. You know, you have to like, like 100 candles, 200 candles. I mean, all joking aside, how would you fit in your house, your living room, 200 candles? Unless you're one of these richy riches, got a giant estate. But regular people, where would you fit 100, 200 candles? You know? Uh, it's, it's, it's quite remarkable. So the Lecha Mishnah very famously says what I just told you. In the Lecha Mishnah, the bottom of the Rambam. He says, If the Rambam says that the Mahadrim and Hadrim means 10, 20, 100, 80 candles, 100 candles, in Kin Hach Minik, come on, the Mahadrim Madlik in there is Kaminian Anche Bais Bechalaylo Lailo Beliho Safa. Then what's this Minig he says in Spain which contradicts that? Hach Minig, come on, the Minig in Spain, who's it go like? The Mahadrim and Hadrim. They're going to light, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Mahadran people are going to light according to the number of people in the house every night the same number. So in the case I told you before, where there's 20 people in the family, it's 20 the first night, 20 the second night, 20 the third night, and so forth. So how are you going to work out the Mahadran and the where you add one light, extra light every 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 night? Because that's not what's happening. If you want to go by the Neri Shubeso, you don't need anything except a grand total of one candle the first night and a grand total of, second, of one candle the second night, all down to the eighth night, even if you had 100 people in your family. So the Rambam, who's talking about the, when the Minig is in Spain, nobody's challenging what the Rambam says, not historically accurate, but they're just saying it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Sounds like a Zeminic Batos. So if you go like Tosus, who says that there's a grand total of one menorah in the house, not one candle, one menorah in the house. The father lights on behalf of everybody. Um, and that's it. So, all right. Right? All right. That's different. So then you'd light one the first night, one the second night, uh, two the second night, three the third night, and so forth. Okay? Uh, but not the way we do, not the way the Ramam says, 
the like the, the twenty the third night, forty the second night, sixty the third night, eighty the second. By the time you get to, oh my goodness! By the time you get to the eighth night of Hanukkah, you're talking about one hundred sixty kins. How you do that? So what does the Rama mean? So the Lecha Mishnah suggests, and many other Achronim get into all this, it's still not wrong. You are adding, you're going according to the Din. In other words, you do have the minimum of one candle. And really, one candle is enough. But we decided, he says, and this Fardim, to, you know, to add, to make up shara, so to speak, and add it in the way that we just described. No, it's not exactly logical. It's more a question of historical evolution, it seems. And it's okay, even though, technically speaking, you could ding on it. There's a famous Kasha Lecha Mishnah in the Rambam, and as I think many know who are listening to this, because if you ever learned uh, Shulchan Aruch and Mishnah Buru and all that sort of thing, so the Taz basically says it's, it's funny because the Sephardim today, as far as I'm aware, all do a grand total of a single menorah in the house. The father lights on behalf of everybody. When the kids grow up and they have their household, then, the, then each son lights the menorah in, in the son's house. But the Ashkenazim, we do the other way, which everybody in the house lights the menorah, typically. Right? We have four or five kids. Each kid lights his or own menorah. Isn't that what you do? Now, the husband and wife light one, but, uh, and some even, the Hassam Silver said the wife actually later on, but we don't do that. Uh, but each kid does it individually. So, it comes out funny because it seems like we're going like the Rambam, sort of, and the Sephardim are going like the Tosfas because they have a grand total of one, one menorah precisely to avoid the confusion I just talked about. And the Taz says it's strange that the Ashkenazim go like the Rambam and Sephardim go like the uh, like the Tosis. Usually it's the other way around. You know, Ashkenaz follow the Ashkenaz and Sephardim follow the Sephardim. I think many have heard about that. It's kind of famous. And, you know, if you go into real deeply, which I don't want to go into right now, you can really answer it. The Rambam's not really so problematic, but uh, like I say, that'll get us all too technical for a podcast of mine. Um... Let me. I hope I haven't confused you, but anyone who's familiar with this knows what I'm talking about. I mean, a lot, a lot of people have heard about this. Now, uh, as I said before, this had an interesting history in Jewish history. And usually, if the Rambam says that that was the meaning in Sfarad, okay, so you know, he knows. And presumably, when the uh, Sfarim left Spain, you know, they ended up uh, doing whatever way they did it. Well, it turns out they did like Tosas, and they grinned. It's actually a single menorah. The Sephardim that I know, that's what they do. I have a guy in my show, whatever. The Ashkenaz, they do the different ones, but the way we get around Tosas' problem of how do you know how many lights it is is because everybody has their own menorah. Correct? So let's say, for example, it's the third night, and let's say, for argument's sake, I have four people in my family. So let's say I have two kids. Me and my wife is one. So I have three menorahs. Grand total, me and my wife, that's one. My son, that's another one. My daughter, that's another one. So you look and you see. Here's a menorah with three. Here's a menorah with three. Here's a menorah with three. We're Ashkenazi. We're Americans. We know exactly what's going on. You have multiple menorahs. Each one represents another person in the family. And you, each one has the identical number of what night it is. So basically, we don't do the Mahadrin, right? 
In other words, I, I don't do for the first night, for the second night, for the third night. We don't do that. We did the Mahadrin, Mahadrin, which is, Tosa says, is not based on the Mahadrin. You don't see anybody walking by with 80 candles or, you know, 60 candles, or they do exclusively a number of people in their family. You can, by the way. You're allowed to. Is a Mahadrin. You're allowed to. But that, the custom has evolved the way we just said it, which is why the menorahs and the Hanukkiahs all have eight. Right? Because you're following that rigid pattern. Uh, now, in Jewish history, when the Ashkenazim lived by themselves and the Sparna lived by themselves, <coughs> okay, so everybody does whatever they want. The Sparna did it their way, the Ashkenazim did it their way. In addition to that, there were variations of whether they did it outside or inside. It is Tosis himself who says the light on the inside uh, when there's anti-Semitism. Uh, you know, Bishasa uh, Sakona, the Gemara says. So, you know, you light it in, 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 in your house, right? What's the expression over there? Can't find it in the Gemara. You know, you don't talk about it. Now, um, and this, here it is. Manich al Shulchan of And that's got a history of its own. I remember seeing in the Harfinist book, because I'm not Hasidish, I don't know, but uh, he says there are many Hasidim in Eretz Yisrael who still light in the inside. And they've evolved a whole theology behind it. In other words, if you live in the state of Israel, you shouldn't worry about anti-Semitism. You live in Me'ashar Magula. I mean, you're not worried about anti-Semitism. So you, can, you should light on the outside. You know, Temach Samalabeso and all that. Uh, or the outside of the Chatser, even they have Chatseris in, in Yerushalayim. But in spite of what I just said, I saw in that uh, Satmar book that, you know, many Hasidim, all, I don't know, many Hasidim, um, you know, still light in the inside. Literally, even though conditions have changed, but like I say, they have theological reasons of the or shouldn't go outside and this and that and the other. If you're interested, you check out that boy's uh, going to Shabbos, make the Shabbos or whatever, you know, for really Harfinus. Shine. Now, what happened, and this is just now interesting to me historically, uh, it started to get interesting in the early modern period, meaning in the 15th, 16th, 1700s, because then, the Jews in Spain were kicked out of Spain. The Jews in, in Ashkenaz were kicked out mostly out of um, Germany and into Poland. Uh, and then, in the 1600s, due to the vicissitudes of politics and Jewish politics, so some of the, you know, when the Jews were kicked out of Spain, so that's the Sephardim Tahorim, but there were plenty who stayed behind for one reason or another. And without considering the whole thing all over again, the Spanish, the, the Portuguese Jews, the ones that ran away to Portugal and they were screwed over there, they became, it was from their ranks that you had what you and I called the Anusim, the Moranos, who secretly practiced Judaism, or more accurately, longed to practice Judaism. And some of these Moranos were killed and some of these Moranos escaped at different times at different places over the courses of the 1500s, the 1600s and 1700s, since a long time. The Sephardi Sephardi went usually eastward to the Turkish Empire, maybe to Italy, and they kept it this Friday Shem and hug him. Those are the guys who talk Ladino, you understand? The Imams kept up to the best of their ability this Friday Shem and hug him, or some variation thereof, without going into details. Uh, you know, so think about uh, Egypt, Syria, Salonika, Istanbul, you know, what am I, you know, uh, Monastir, all this, all this type of places. Now, um, on the other hand, there were the other Spartan, 
the ones who had converted, they were not the Sephardim Tahorim, but what we call the Anusim, the Spanish Portuguese Jews or Portuguese Jews. So again, I've talked about this endlessly in the past. So I'll simply say that when you look at the 1600s or the 17th century, that's when escapees from Portugal and Spain not only were able to escape physically from Spain and Portugal and thereby cheat the death of the of the Inquisition, but they actually formed Jewish communities of their own, didn't exist before the 1600s, and uh, formal Kehillahs. And they became part of the Jewish map. So having disappeared from Jewish life for a couple of generations, they now reappeared in a slightly different variant. This is the famous communities of Amsterdam and London and Bordeaux and The Hague, Livorno, and one of them was in Hamburg, which is interesting. Hamburg, as maybe you know, is in northern Germany. I always have the problem with podcasts that people do not know geography, except the one or two weirdos that write to me and say, I do know geography. Yeah. So uh, good for you. I mean, I'm uh, that's very good. Because you can't understand history without uh, geography, uh, among other things. But northern Germany is a place that usually, you know, in, in Hamburg is, you know, near Denmark. And the you know the Atlantic Ocean, the Baltic Sea, and that whole general area. Um, I'm a famous port city, so uh, you think of Hamburg as German, therefore think of it as Ashkenazic. But you're wrong, because since you have the screwball history of the Jews in Germany, so once upon a time the Jews lived all over the place in Germany, which was called the Holy Roman Empire. It was in different states, but then. In the late Middle Ages and the early modern period, in other words, in the 1200s, 1300s, 1400s, 1500s, the Goyim came to despise and hate the presence of the Jews, and they either, either were murdered or, or whatever, or kicked out of the vast majority of the German states. So to use an American analogy, they used to live in 50 states, and by the time you get to the 1500s, they live in like three or four states. That's how it works. They were kicked out of the rest of the 50 states. So northern Germany especially, the place the Jews were kicked out of, they ran away to Poland for, for the most part, which is not so far away. And in Poland, they were able to settle down and prosper to some degree. But then, in the 1600s came funny developments. First of all, the Spanish-Portuguese Jews began settling in certain areas and establishing Jewish communities. As I said before, the main one was in Amsterdam. But eventually they came to Hamburg, pretty early on. Now these were Portuguese Jews, the Hainu. They looked like Goyim. They dressed and talked and walked like Goyim. Happens to be that they were not Goyim. They were born Catholic, but they escaped and now came out of the closet and said, we identify as Jews. Hamburg was a Protestant area. The Protestants were intensely anti-Semitic at that period. The German Protestants are much worse than the British Protestants in that regard. And it was only the unquestionable economic utility of these Portuguese Jews who were all businessmen and merchants that led the authorities in, in Hamburg to hold their nose and allow them to stay there. Um, it took a while for all this to happen. And by the time the process finished, uh, the Jews established a, a Sephardic Kehillah, 
with a synagogue and all the rest of it, led by an Edhunta, you know, seven little, little Hitlers who dominate the Jewish community in the good old Spanish-Portuguese style, and that's how they liked it. So when you saw these guys in the street, unless you looked very closely, they didn't wear yarmulkes and they dressed like everybody else, and it wasn't sitzes in the rice and things like that. But they did go to Shul on Saturday, you know, and they observed, uh, you know, what they knew and more and more and more of the Jewish laws over time. That's very important what I just said. More and more of the Jewish laws over time. Mind you, these Jews escaped from Spain and Portugal. They had no idea what Judaism really is. How would they know? All they had access to was the Old Testament in Spanish or in Portuguese. And so they figured, comes Pesach, you shech the carbon Pesach, you know what I mean? So they were simply unaware of the evolution and developments in historical Judaism that has taken place in the post-Talmudic era. Uh, I mean, forget the post-Talmudic era. In the Talmudic era, <laughs> you know what I mean? No, they didn't know about How should they know about it? Now, when the Jews came to Amsterdam, there were a few among them who realized that they don't know anything. And they sent to... Uh, Venice, which for a very variety of reasons had old Sephardim plus new Sephardim. They had the Sephardim Tahorim plus these new Spanish-Portuguese Jews there. So since they had both types of Jews in Venice, A could be Mashpia on B. The older regular Sephardim could be Mashpia on the new ones. Now they dress different and they talk different. This one talks Ladino, that one talks proper Portuguese or proper Spanish. This one dresses like a Jew. That one dresses like a guy. I mean, there were those cultural differences, but they were all from the same Sephardish world. Okay? Now, as we saw, the way the Sephardi practice emerged was that there's a grand total of a single menorah in the house, and that's it. Okay? And then, the first night one, second night two, and so forth. Now, uh, in fact... If you like the Rambam, I don't think they did it. You know, depending how many people in your family, you multiplied each night. But they ended up doing what we do, which is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. The key point I want to bring out is that they had one menorah, no more. The authorities in Hamburg didn't want to let any Jews in, but if they said it's necessary for the economy, at least Bidiyevid. The, the Spanish-Portuguese Jews are better because they don't look so Jewy, which was true. And they talk Yiddish and act uncouth and all that, and dress different and so forth. So who wants to see all these Hasidim running all over the place? Yuck. They want people to look, you know, Gaish. However, over the course of time, it invariably happened that once you land in one type of Jew, the others come in as well. And so, in Amsterdam, began all Spanish-Portuguese Jews but eventually, since there was business to be done there, uh, Jews from Poland and such places showed up and formed parallel communities because they're not members of the Sephardi community. They don't talk Portuguese, and it's a whole different world. So you had two communities living side by side in, in Amsterdam and other places, and eventually in Hamburg. The Chasha ones, but smaller, was the Sephardim. The newcomers was the Ashkenaz. But that's in terms of economics. In terms of Yiddishkeit, the Ashkenazim had an unbroken chain of tradition. The Spanish-Portuguese dude had a broken chain of tradition. Even though they send them uh, to the different communities, rabbis and stuff like that from Venice, try to teach them about Yiddishkeit, 
But, you know, they weren't all successful overnight everywhere. And I'm not even going through the whole story. That's how Spinoza emerges. A lot of people who accept a part and not others, and so forth and so on. Now, that leads to our story because if you get to the 1700s, there are two communities in Hamburg. Hamburg itself is three, is three towns. Today it's all one nearby each other. Altona, Hamburg, Wandsbek, Ahu. You've heard of that before. <coughs> Ahu, Altona, Hamburg, and Wandsbek. Uh, which is on the German-Danish border, without going into details. And in the 1600s, 1700s, it was the year of Ambi Israel. Uh, the communities weren't gigantic, but they were guns fine. And there's the Sephardic one, and there's the Ashkenazic one. And the Jews live in two universes, Ashkenaz and Sephardic, but they see each other, they deal with each other. And so, sooner or later, there's going to be some kind of a rubbing against each other, and in this case, it happened in the context of Hanukkah, in a very famous incident, which is recorded in the Shalos and Shuvah's Knesset Yecheskel, which is quoted in the Shari Chuvah. Some of you may be familiar with this. When you learn Mishtabura and you look at the Shari Chuvah over there, he references this in a very brief way. Uh, now, the, the Knesset Yecheskel, the Shalos Yecheskel, was Yecheskel Allenbogen, who was a Litvish Arab that they brought him in, the Ashkenazim, who were East European Jews. To be the Rav, the Rav Basin of the three communities, as they call Ahu. It's three. It's one Basin for all three communities, uh, and he wrote the Shalos Tzibus Knesset Yecheskel. Uh, as far as I know, their guns fine. For some reason, Yaakov Emne hates his guts, and in his uh, autobiography, he damns them up and down, and he cusses them out. Oh my God! You think he's the biggest Russia Marusha, and worse, he's the biggest Amars that ever walked down the road. Which is, of course, not true. Uh, and it's a case where, you know, Yaakov and them really blew his top. Uh, which is one of the reasons they don't like to have people read, you know, uh, the autobiography of, of Jacob Emden. Um, in other words, besides the Abishutz fights, he always had against the Kennedy Haskell. But, having, but he didn't accuse him of being a Sabatian, he just accused him of being an Amaritz. Having said that, if you read this today for you see he's not an Amaritz. It's ridiculous. And... He actually writes very well, in my opinion, my humble opinion. And he has a famous question over there, which is that there was a, a, a landlord, a Sephardi, and a, a tenant in Ashkenazi, which makes sense because I told you the Sephardim had more money. They were there earlier and they were more successful in business. And the Sephardi is the landlord and the Ashkenaz guy is the tenant. And it comes Hanukkah. And... The Ashkenaz guy said, so I guess I want to light the menorah. And the Sephardi guy, who's the landlord and the owner of the house, maybe he did, the Ashkenaz lives in the basement or something like that, I don't know, says, you can't light the candle. I light the candle for everybody in the, in, in the house. That's the minute. Sha'alti, Ashkenaz, Shadar, Bebeis, Bebeis, Sephardi, Verotz, Elias, Moseb, Holub, Adlokas, Ner, There's an Ashkenaz guy who's a tenant in a Sephardi home. And he wants to like the menorah. So first of all, the Sephardi guy wants to do it differently. He doesn't want to do it. He, he just wants to do Neri Shubeso. Uh, I don't even know what that means. Uh, it, the way it sounds is that the Ashkenaz guy wants to do um, Mahadrin. And the Sephardi guy wants to do Mahadrin, Mina Mahadrin, 
like Tosis. So first of all, they're arguing over the proper way of lighting a menorah. And second, in Yosi Ashkenaz made us fight him. And is that okay? Because if the Ashkenaz guy does it, as I told you before, uh, he wishes to do the, the he wishes to do the Mahadran system. So, like I said, he's going to need more than eight. I mean, depending on his family situation. And this Friday guy, no. So, can the Ashkenazi guy be Yotzi with the with the with the can lending of the Sephardi? And number two, Asher Sephardi knowing Shrek Balbais Madlik near Chanuk Velozu Loso Umosu Velokedasa Machaber Panashka Ashkenazim Noking Kabal Mapo Shekol Bnei Bais Mosu Holuch. And the Ashkenaz guy turns out wants to do like you and I, which have multiple menorahs, and everybody likes their own. Ashkenazi Yechad Darbe Bais Sephardi Sephardi Mochik Ba Ashkenazim Mahadu Gaveso. He wrote Salamid Kimin Hogo, Imish Limchos, Imyotzi Ashkenazi, Ad Kalashano. So basically, the landlord doesn't want him to light the candles at all, and the Ashkenazi guy wants to. And this is the famous question. And the Knesset Yechesel treats it very, you know, from the bottom up, with the Gemaras and, and, and the Rishonim and so on and so forth. And there's a Mafapal in it, which will be too long for us to go. Uh, I'm calling this to your attention for those who are interested. This is Knesset Yechesel number 17, which you'll be happy to hear for those who are interested in following up what I'm talking about tonight. This is actually online. I don't mean on Hebrew books. You Google Knesset Yechesel Shiloh 17. For some reason, somebody put it up. You know, the whole thing in regular, you know, in, in one of these wiki uh, pages. So you can get the whole business. Um, and you can follow it if you want to. Now, I'm interested, you know, me, is in the historical part which has to do with um, trying to capture historical verities from the responsal literature, which are not always reliable, as we shall see over here, but it shows you the state of mind of the responsal writer of the postgame at different times and places. <clears throat> okay? Now, um, as I say, going through the Gemara and basic Rishonim and so on and so forth, and then he brings up, which is interesting, that... He's trying to account for the difference between the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim with something that's not exactly true, but it's part of the Jewish popular image of the Ashkenazim and Sephardim. And he says, So here, the Knesset Yecheskel, who usually is a very litvish, uh, pure Shulchan type guy, quotes from two famous history books, the Shalshal HaKabola and the Tzemach David, both from the 1500s, the uh, Shalshal's Kabbalah is notoriously unreliable, but it doesn't matter. That's what people used. And in these two books that were written in the 1500s, <coughs> history books, it says, Yisrael Shabal L'Sfarad, Hayyman and Duxim Basarim. This is the Spanish uh, Sephardish uh, um, conceit that, oh, when they came to Spain, the Jews in Spain were uh, arist- aristocracy. Uh, dukes and Asarim, there were dukes and princes, and they're high in the royal uh, 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 courts. In other words, like every Sephardi was Chazdeh ben Shaprut, instead of there being one Chazdeh Shaprut, everybody else was a regular guy, which is what really happened historically. But the Sephardim always profit their shtick, especially in the 1500s, 1700s, that we are superior to the Ashkenaz Jews. And they sold the Goyim on this, because we come from the aristocratic element within Judaism, and the Ashkenaz come from the riffraff. The Jews in Spain, it goes, were highly educated, 
uh, high in the government, big mockers, and equal to the European aristocracy. The Ashkenazim came from the riffraff. Uh, now, it's not true, but that's what, what they put out there, and a lot of people believed it. So, so if that's the case, these Sephardim actually could light outside their house and all because they were princes and members of the elites. Nobody could touch them. So then, they would have to figure out some way, uh, you know, that you could figure out how many candles is that night, the way Tosis raised the problem, that if I have a family of four the first night, four the second night, four the third night, and you have a family of five, you do five the first night, five the second night, five the third night, it would be confusing. So that's why they developed this idea, since they're looking for it to be pursuing Nisa for the passers-by, they weren't afraid of the hoi poli of the guy because they were princes and high officials, and they lived well. So they actually did pursue Nisa for the passers-by, so therefore they had to go with Neri Shabeso. We all know things eventually went bad in Spain, they got kicked out. But the original Minig was based on the good times. Minig was saying, they still kept to the old customs, which they thought comes from Jerusalem, because they said the Sephardim came straight from Israel and from Yerushalayim. All of which is bogus, but that's what they believed. So that's where they got their custom of one of Neri Shabeso and Moshev Holoch. We poor Jews, Siri Atzon, who came to Ashkenaz, to France and to Germany, from day one, we had it rough. To, to be perfectly honest with you, that's not true, but I'm not going to go into the details of that. So from the time we shot up in Ashkenaz, it was anti-Semitism. And therefore, we were never able to light outside. They never developed in Ashkenaz, the Knesset Yechesko says, writing in the early 1700s, a minute to light outside. So now you can do like the Rambam, because what do we have? 20 to the second night, 30 to the third night, 40 to the fourth night? It's only for the inside, so we in the inside know how many people are in the family we know who we're lighting for. You see? We know. Uh, the house might burn down, but we know. And when the Rambam says that they did also 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, and so forth, in the time of the Rambam, things had gone south in Spain. In other words, we all know the Rambam lived in the Almohads, and he himself eventually had to flee the country, and conditions went bad, and that's why the Minig, he says, was to um, light in the, you know, uh, in the inside of the house, Lamaisa, Gankin, Kaminigiro, Bisforad, and that's why he could write multiple 20, 30, 40, 50, because you don't care what the passerby is going to come out. You see, in my family, we know how many people we are. And if I'm lighting only in the inside, in the living room, or in the dining room, we know how many we are, and therefore we can interpret the candles properly. And we'll know last night was four, next night was eight, next night was 12, and so forth. The outside people don't know, but we know. Therefore, we can do it. Now, this is what you call a populistic reconstruction of history. That, you know, why does the Ramam do this way? Must be that originally they started, you know, um, lighting on the outside. Therefore, they had to do like the Tosis way. 
But by the time of the Rambam and the persecutions, they shifted to doing it on the inside. Therefore, you could do it that other way. It's very interesting dialectical inter- uh, 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 reconciliation of the different texts, the Rambam and Allah Beis and Rambam Allah Gimel. It's just not true. Meaning, it's not like in the Rambam's time when the, under the Almohads, you know, you could you could light on the outside or the inside. I mean, you, you had to you had to watch your mind. Uh, well, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe when the Rambam was young and living under a false identity, they lit that way. But he wouldn't say minig pasha b'chol I mean, it doesn't make sense. In other words, the Rambam was born in 1138. The Almohad showed up in 1150, I think. Uh, so he was like 13. So what, minig pasha b'chol to light in the in, inside the house. I mean, it's not a minute pasha b'chol svarad. That was that was under the the the, the persecution. You had to pretend you're Muslim. Uh, the minute pasha b'chol svarad is the old svaradish minig. I mean, that's the plain pasha meaning of the words of the Rambam. Uh, sounds more, much more like he's reflective of of, of the Spanish minhagim that had been there, you know, from the time of the Riff and before that. Uh, but it's very interesting, like you say, you hear you a a Lithuanian uh, rabbinic populist trying to figure out the reconstruction of history on the base of this. But then, uh, then he goes, uh, after talking a little bit more, then he goes into more recent history. And here it's very fascinating. But we here in Hamburg, so uh, in, in, in Hamburg, it's too much anti-Semitism. Nobody lights the candle outside. Everybody lights the candle inside. Ashkenaz and Sfarnim. It, it would cause too much attention. That's why we all do, or we should all do, the same way, which is to light, uh, you know, everybody in the family should light separate. One, the first night, two, the second night, three, the third night, as, as you and I do, most of us listening to this. Okay? Um, because now, we're all holding like the Ashkenaz in the Middle Ages. I, the Sephardim, don't do it. The Sephardim still insist that there's one guy lighting one menorah for the whole family uh, and not for all the members of the family. You know, In other words, not four the first night, eight the second night, twelve the third night. You know, not, that, not that way. Uh, so, uh, they're wrong. The Sephardim here are very proud. And they don't understand it, he says, the way I do. And they won't be Mavata or their Minug, which is one guy lights the candle for the whole family, period. And they don't realize that that's because of changed historical circumstances. And now, because circumstances have, are, are that everybody lights inside, they should do the, the Ramah's way. But on the other hand, the Sephardi landlord doesn't have the right to force the Ashkenazi to be Mavalta, the Sephardi Sheminig, which makes sense in current historical circumstances where we have the anti-Semitism, and our way is the right way. I mean, I know I can't persuade the Sephardim to see it my way. Remember, he was the chief rabbi of the Ashkenazi communities of Ahu, but there was also a Sephardi community that was not under him. And he said, I know these Sephardim are stubborn, and they think it's like an Ashkenazi plot, and so on and so forth. But they're wrong, and if I can't persuade them, I can't persuade them. But they certainly shouldn't have the chutzpah to force an Ashkenazi to do their way, the wrong way. 
Umash etorn asfardi, mitam losis go to do. The Sephardim then said like this, you can't change because the losis go to do. In other words, we Sephardim were here first, as I told you the history of Jewish settlement in Hamburg. And we started the minute, and then you guys showed up. So the minute is now what we say it is. And you can't do it because losis go to do. He said, Gamza Hevel. Why? Echod. Af anu nomer lo daitcha. Loma shenizim minim ashkenazim ashashu atzis. Elu kona biyosam. You're in Germany. Germany is the land of Ashkenaz. Why did you change the minic of the Ashkenazim who used to dwell in these lands before you Sephardim showed up? Now, it's not exactly true in Hamburg. No Ashkenazim had lived there. The Sephardim were actually the first ones there. See, he says, Avsha Begilosenu. It is true, historically, that you guys, the Sephardim, came here before we did. But let's be honest. Until we Sephardim showed up, you guys didn't practice Neiris Hanukkah. See, I told you, these are the Muranos, the Danusim. Uh, they established their own Kehillahs. And... They didn't keep everything. They picked up little by little. They had to learn what Judaism is. And one of the things they did not do was Neiris Hanukkah. <laughs> Simple as that. Maybe because of the... I, Me, myself, and I would guess because of the fear from that was in their bones from Spain and Portugal not to provoke the Goyim and so forth. Uh, you know, makes sense. And they had no tradition of lighting in the house. Although we do hear stories, you and I, that, you know, they used to light candles... Friday night, and then blow out the candles, you know, stuff like that, which actually would work for Neiris Hanukkah. But he's saying like this, let's cut the baloney. You guys were here first, but you didn't you didn't light candles on Hanukkah. Kim before some. Everybody knows this. Until we, Ashkenazim, showed up in Altona, one of the three communities, and then you learned, hey, what are they, these Ashkenazi guys doing on Hanukkah? They're doing Neiris Hanukkah, they're making brachas, they're saying Neiris Halolu, they're singing Malusur. Huh, that's interesting. And then, Oz Gam Hashem. And you picked that up. So we see here a fascinating episode, I would say, in the history of the Minhagim of Hanukkah, which is, who says every Jewish community all the time heard about Hanukkah? Today it's taken for granted because it's such a Mephorsim Tika holiday. But at one time or another, it wasn't. Uh, you know and I know, before in modern era, Hanukkah wasn't the big shmeel that it is today. Uh, with the parties every night, and presents, and this, and the, kid, and the parents give the kids presents, like it's Christmas or something like that, compete with the Goyim, and you have the TV shows, and the, now you have the concerts, and all the rest of it. Especially in America, you say it's a fight for religious freedom and all this other stuff. And I'm not even talking about Chabad, which ups everything up and puts a menorah you know, in the Pope's bedroom, you know, it's, 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 they got, now it's a different story. Once upon a time long ago, Hanukkah was a more um, modest holiday, shall we say? And, you know, f- f- families lit the menorah, they, they, you know, they did their little thing, and that's it. You know, and the halachic books only deal with the question of, can you have Hanuf and the Neiras and all that kind of business, you know, for the half hour, for 30 minutes. But does it does. And after that, you know, there were some women, I say some women who didn't work, and you know, th- th- that kind of thing. But Hanukkah wasn't a big bang that it is today. Uh, you see, the Ashkenazim, he says, uh, started. So basically, you're doing the losis go to do. 
In other words, who started here in Hamburg lighting Hanukkah candles? We Ashkenazim did. We also did it inside, and we did it like Tosis. Uh, you know, or I should say like the Rambam, actually. Because since it's inside, so we don't worry about the confusion. Everybody knows in the inside how many people in their own family. Uh, then you started and picked it up from us. Hey, if you picked it up from us, you should do what we do. You shouldn't do the one guy lights for the family. You should do what we do, which is everybody in the family lights their own menorah. And you should do the way we do, which is everybody in the family lights their own menorah. And that way, there's a grand total of 80 candles. I mean, think about your family. Think what I'm about to tell you. When the eighth night, I don't know how many people, how would I know, live in your family. But just for the heck of it, let's say there are six people in your family. A mother, father, and four kids. Just for argument's sake. So that means, if you think about it, that... um. On the last night of Hanukkah, that's six times eight. That's a fair number of candles out here. But we don't notice that because everybody's got a separate menorah. And usually they put the menorah somewhere else, you know, in such a way that it shouldn't be bunched up that you can't tell. Uh, but that's de facto the same way as around I'm saying 20 the first night, 40 the second night, and 80 the last night, or 150 the last night. That's what it comes out to. So you guys, you Sephardim should be following us. And you sure as heck shouldn't be prohibiting an Ashkenazi tenant from wanting to do it the right way. Uh, so it comes out over here that, you know, it's a question of whose ox is being gored. No, we don't have a response from this, and I don't know if the Sephardi landlord listened to him, because he didn't have to. Uh, the Basin and Ashkenaz, that's for the Ashkenazi guys, they don't control the Sephardim. But since he was asked to Shaila, See, he gave the sense. And now there's more to it than what I shared with you because he has some lumbers involved in Los Escotado and things like that. And whoever's interested, it's very learned. It's not so long either. It could definitely be done. Uh, I think you would find it a pretty readable tshuva. It's, it's quite interesting from the historical perspective. I've shared with you the juicy historical parts. But you see a chapter in this of the evolution or maybe the development, the historical development, of Hanukkah in the sense of how was the practice of the holiday implemented? You see? How was it implemented? And who did that? And how did it evolve? And the answer is not so clear. You know, some did this way, some did that way. Dashkanaz ended up one way, this fine another way. Uh, today, you know, the, the, the various minhagam have evolved. I think the only time you get clashes to any degree whatsoever is in yeshivas where you have Sephardi students, but they go by, you know, Vanyos, whoever. I mean, nobody makes a fight out of it today. You understand? I saw the other day that he told the Iranian guys in near Israel many years ago, the uh, uh, Vanyos, you're Yotzi what your parents are lighting in Persia. That's what it said in the book. Uh, okay, I mean, who is, who's going to argue with the Vanyos? Fine, that's, if that's the Sephardi system, fine. The Ashkenaz do it this way. But once upon a time, there are clashes over this, and there's always these questions of pride. You understand? Pride. So pride goes before the fall. But it's this interesting example of this Knesset Yechaskel of how uh, ethnicity intersects with pride and uh, clashes uh, in creating the various traditions that make up a holiday. I thought that's kind of interesting. And with that, I'll close down. I wish everybody uh, couldn't find anybody for that. Maybe I'll find... Uh, Sponsor for tomorrow or whatever for the, for the parsha. I have another idea or two to run by Hanukkah as well. Um, but I wish you all with this frail from Hanukkah. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, 
please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.